0: Church. Good morning. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to First Thessalonians four. Chapter four. We will be reading starting in verse thirteen and we'll go on into chapter five later in the message. The title of this morning is The Last Things. The Last Things. The Study of the End Times. Big word for that is eschatology. So I got my sleeves rolled up. I hope you are rolling up your sleeves now spiritually to dig into the Word, to dig into this topic. Eschatology, the study of end times. You could fill a library with books that have been written on eschatology and different perspectives and different opinions. This is a topic that is charged with opinions and charged with perspectives and charged with speculation and predictions and fantasy novels and questions. Now, a couple different sides of the spectrum. On one side, when you hear the word end times, you might be tempted to be indifferent, right? Like, too many symbols, these beasts, and these dragons, and these this Antichrist, and all these things, this mystery. Ah, I just don't even want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. It just hurts my head. And the other side, there can be an element where you just love that word eschatology, and you love the, the topic of end times, and it become, it become consuming charts, and figuring out the affairs of the nations, and reading headlines, and checking Checking the latest technological advances so much that it becomes like something that is an obsession. We want to be informed on this topic, right? Scripture guides us on that. We want to be informed on this topic. That's how our passage begins. But we want to have the right focus. We want to have the right focus. And tell you what, going back to God's revelation in Scripture has a way of realigning our focus. Which is what we want to do this morning. When we turn our eyes to Scripture, we find that it's not primarily concerned with pinpoint timelines or the activities of the nations, though it may mention them. That's not its primary concern when discussing the end times. We see that most of all, studying the end times, you know what it reminds us? That God is in control of all of history, that his purposes will prevail that Satan will be defeated, and that Christ will be king forever. We've got to keep that as our primary focus and keep the main things the main things. And tell you what, when we keep this vision of that glorious future reality in the front of our eyes, what happens is that we are sustained and we're motivated in our present reality right now. That makes sense? When we keep our eyes fixed on our future guaranteed reality, it sustains, it strengthens, it motivates us for right here, right now. So if you ever thought about like end times, is just about the end times, the last things. No, the way scripture guides us is we think, we, we focus on the last things that we might be strengthened and motivated for today, right now. We'll see that in our passage this morning. We'll read verses, beginning verses 13 to 18 of chapter 4. We'll also look at some other New Testament passages and we'll dip our toes in Revelation. But let's remember as we turn our eyes to this letter written to the church in Thessalonica, you may remember in Acts 17, Paul visited this church. The church was planted and he taught them for a few weeks and then the and then the people of the city rose up against him and Paul was run out of town. So you can just imagine that Paul began to talk to them about the end times and these different things, but then he was run out of town. And there's a lot of things he didn't get to. So evidently now the church has written Paul and said, hey, Paul, these people are dying. We're burying people. And you said Christ is coming back, but we're burying people. So when is, when is Jesus coming back? And what's going to happen to all the people who are in the grave? Are they going to... Come back to? So it's a church, it's a young church fraught with questions about what's going to happen. And look how Paul, the Apostle Paul, the pastor Paul responds to this church in verse 13. Read along with me. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Please join me in prayer. We're blessed now with the preaching of your word. And as we sang a bit ago, as we prayed, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Spirit, move in our midst this morning. Jesus' name, amen. As Paul writes here, he begins this section and he ends this section, we want to be informed that we might be encouraged. right? Informed that we might be encouraged. And I want to spend some time this morning by looking at three ways, three points, three ways having a biblically informed eschatology, an eschatology that's informed from the Bible, three ways that that encourages us in this, in this life. So point number one, a biblically informed eschatology points to a certain future. A certain future. We see these, in, this in these verses we just read. Here Paul, Paul, Paul comes alongside this church who's grieving because they've recently buried loved ones and he cares for them. His aim here isn't to break down every single event that's going to happen in the future, right? But to care for this church, to encourage this church. And he does it by pointing them to the future, by pointing them to their guaranteed hope. And notice how their certain future and our certain future, it's it's a couple of things. It's grounded in hope through the gospel and it's centered on Jesus Christ. Right? It's grounded in hope, certain hope, through the gospel and it's centered on Jesus Christ. We see that right here in verse 13. We don't grieve as others do who have no hope. Implied that we do have hope. And and get this, when you see the word hope in Scripture, we're not talking about like, I hope this will happen. I hope it doesn't rain the rest of the day. I don't know, but I hope, I wish. Hope is a guarantee. So we grieve as those who have hope is the implication. And he goes on, he says, for since we believe Jesus died and rose again. We have this hope grounded in what Jesus has done. Hope grounded in the gospel centered on Christ." Before we even think about the future, Paul goes to the past and looks back at what Jesus has done for us. Jesus died and rose again, which means Satan has been defeated, which means Jesus will reign forever. And it means that when we came to Jesus in faith, we were united to him in his death and resurrection. So just like he was buried and rose again, we will one day die, likely, And rise again with him. He will not abandon his own. Whether we're dead or alive, when he comes back, we will go with him. So, our hope is set on Jesus' promise to return and bring us home. And Paul pulls back the curtain a bit to show us what that might look like, what that will look like, because it's going to happen. And he just gives us a glimpse of what that will look like. And so, I have some questions as you may have approaching this topic that we'll think through together. First, what what would the second coming be like? Well, Paul gives us a few things here in this passage. First, the second coming, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be magnificent. The Greek word here for coming is perousia. That was used for when a high official would come into the area. You know what they would do? They would throw a celebration with pomp. And banquets. And they would have a joyful celebration. And so this word coming, Jesus' parousia will be even more magnificent and glorious when he comes. He he tells us in Luke 21, he says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's going to be a glorious day. And I hope, I don't know whether we will be there for that day, but I hope we will. Because that is going to be a glorious day. First and foremost. Secondly, Christ's return will be personal. It's going to be personal. What that means is that He's going to come back in His physical body, right? Acts one, the angels, He, he went up, and the angels said, "He's going to come back in the same way He came. When he went up. He's going to come back in His physical body, and He's not going to send an angel to announce everything. He's going to come back. That's what we mean by personal. And lastly, His 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 coming will be visible. Right? I mean, look, at the, look at the words in this text. Verse 16, he's going to descend with a cry of command. The voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet. It's going to be a loud day. It's going to be loud when this happens. You're not going to sleep through it. You're not going to be an alarm, need an alarm clock when this day comes. It's going to be loud. It's going to be visible to all. Revelation 19 says he will come like a rider on, on a white horse robed in righteousness with an army of angels surrounding him, not as a baby like he did the first time, but coming back as judge and as king for all to see. And what about us on that day? What, what's going to happen to us when Jesus comes? Verse 16 says, that the track with this, right? The dead will rise first to meet him. And then those believers who are living will rise up together to meet him in the clouds. This word meet gets at, uh, originally it was used for, again, when a high, high official, an imperial person was coming into town. If you were smart, you would send out a delegation to go meet him to welcome him and then return with him back to the town to joy and celebration and banquet. So the idea is we're going to go meet him in the clouds and then we're going to return with him to his kingdom. And what does it say? It says we will then be with him forever. It's the idea. We see this also in Matthew 25, right? The same word meet is used there. The, the, the virgins go out to meet the bridegroom and then return with him to the marriage feast. And so what we see here is that all believers, dead or alive, will rise to meet Jesus. And Paul, we don't get this all here in this text. Paul fills this out some in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, in the, we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So Jesus' return will usher in the end of the age. Death will ultimately have no victory. Our physical bodies, we will receive glorified bodies like Christ has now. And at the moment he returns, Jesus will reign forever as the visible king to be seen by all and so we will always be present with the Lord. So we will always be present with the Lord. Where? Where are we going to be? Right? We're going to be on earth, we're going to have what's going to happen in that. We met him in the clouds, where are we going to go? This is where we get into some deep weeds and I encourage you to study all this if you'd like to. We get into this idea of the millennium. There's this view that Jesus will return and set up he will bind Satan and he will set up this millennium kingdom. For a thousand years he will reign on earth. And then one day, after those a thousand years, he will crush Satan. And he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will dwell forever with him. There's another view that would say that, no, when Jesus comes, it's all going to happen at the same time. He's going to crush Satan. The rebellion going to be over. And he's going to... Somehow, as we're up in the clouds, he's the new heavens and the new earth are being created, and we're going to come back, and that's where we'll be forever. Right? And so I'm not going to parse all that out now. Our statement of faith doesn't even do that. Our statement of faith leaves room for... There's different perspectives on this. So we approach topics like that with humility, with charity, because we, we want to keep the main things, the main things. The millennial kingdom, we're gonna, where we're going to be, all those different things encourage you to study that out have conviction but be humble with that as well because here's the point here's what we all need to be in agreement on satan will be destroyed right jesus will come back jesus will set up his kingdom and it will last forever and any rebellion against it will be squashed in an instant like that and we will be present with the lord Amen. Like, that is the story of the Bible. If you go back to Genesis, God created a world that he might dwell with the people, with his people. And they sinned. Right? And there was separation. But we see throughout scripture, God dwelt with his people through a fire and through the cloud. God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. John John chapter 1, Jesus dwelt with us. He he literally tabernacled with us. And one day. God will dwell with His people. That's been His intent from the beginning of creation, to dwell with His people. And the reason that can happen, how can God, who inhabits eternity, who is holy as we just sang, how can He dwell with us forever? Because we were separated by sin. How how can that happen? Because one day we're going to be covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. As we are now, we will eternally be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, dressed in robes of righteousness. And He will draw near to us forever. Here's how Revelation 21 puts it. John writes and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, any more for the former things have passed away. That's glorious. Are Are you mourning this morning? Are you grieving? Are you in pain? There's going to be a day where we're going to say, yeah, those things, those were former things. And you will dwell with God forever. And that is a certainty. This life is just a vapor, right? That is our search and hope that is coming. No more sorrow, no more pain, and we will dwell with God forever. The point here, though, is that we do grieve in this life, right? And that's okay. It's okay to grieve and to lament. We live in a broken world. Broken things happen, and so we grieve. Romans 8 says we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemptions of our bodies. But the difference when we grieve and when we groan is that we we cry out. We grieve in hope. Certain hope. We strain our eyes to see with faith, knowing that our faith will turn to sight. And we will see Christ face to face. And we will be known. And we will worship Him and serve Him. And we will reign with Him forever. And ever and ever and ever, church. That's our future. So be encouraged this morning. The Lord wants to encourage you freshly again this morning, and encourage another with these words. Verse eighteen: Encourage one another with these words. How do we help somebody who's grieving with these words? Encourage one another with these words. How might how might that play out? I was thinking about this this week. I was I was faced with a situation I, I didn't like. I, I didn't have an answer. I didn't really see what God was doing. I didn't think he was going to provide in this situation resources, finances, whatever it might be in that situation. I was hit with that. And I'm going, well, I'm studying the end times and I'm preaching on the fact that the future reality, right, should have present implications. and should. Have, how does that work functionally? How does that work in this moment? Like, I know that's going to happen, but right now, I don't understand this. I don't like this. And the Lord encouraged me, and I feel like He would encourage you this morning with a reminder that because His purpose is for me and for you, for today and for tomorrow and for 20 years from now and 1,000 years from now and 10,000 years from now and forevermore they carry on, that means if, if he's got purposes for you that extend into all eternity, then you can bet he's got his purpose, that he's working out, and they, they will prevail for your life right now, whatever's going on. So it's like, it's like grabbing into our future hope and eternity and saying, like, I'm going to plop that onto my situation right now. I don't know what's going on, but here's what I know. The Lord is accomplishing his purposes in my life. Talk about strength. Talk about encouragement. Taking future hope and applying it to present reality. He will see his good purposes through because his good purposes thread throughout our lives and throughout all of history, and his purpose is to sustain you, to sustain your faith and bring you home to glory, and he will do it. Yeah. Church, do you ever think about? you ever think about how God could have chosen not to reveal this to us, like it just left us wondering? What a gift! Like we could have just gone throughout this life going, I, hope, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what those last days will look like. I wonder what a gift that we have a certain hope and a guaranteed future. Praise the Lord for that. So church, take fresh comfort. We have a certain future. Point number two, a biblically informed eschatology provides a clear expectation. Look at chapter 5 now with me. Paul goes on and he turns to address another question now about the timing of Christ's return. We can all lean forward at that point, right? The timing of Christ's return. And look look at verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul's saying, I I know you're asking about dates and times, maybe because you're curious, maybe because you're wondering if you quit your job, because Jesus might come back tomorrow, so you're trying to figure out life right now, and so you're writing me with all these questions, and guess what? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to answer your question about dates and timing. Why not, Paul? How easy would it have been if you just gave us a date right here and just told us, Lord, if you did that for us? The point is... Paul didn't know. And he's pulling this directly from what Jesus taught. Jesus in Matthew 24, I encourage you to study that this week. Matthew 24, Jesus, the, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives a lengthy discussion about the end times. And he says in verse 36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He goes on to say it's going to be like the days of Noah. People marrying and eating and drinking. That sounds like normal life. So when will Christ come back? 1974? 1844? 2011? 3045? Fill in the blank? We don't know. It could be next month. It could be next year. It could be a thousand years. It could be a thousand years from now. I don't think so. If I had to bank out, I don't think... So. We don't know. That's the point. Right? Scripture never calls us to obsessively Speculate about timing, but to be aware. To watch for the signs that are present and will increase, the gospel going to all nations, increased tribulation, rumors of war, apostasy, false prophets, the Antichrist. But then Paul also says here in verse 3 that Christ will return on the day when our world is proclaiming peace and security. So what I'm driving at is that we need a clear expectation about the return of Jesus Christ. And one point of clarity is to expect the unexpected. Jesus' coming will be like a thief, Paul says, verse 2. He gets that directly from what Jesus said in Matthew 24. The point isn't that it's going to be hidden and secret. It's that thieves don't tell you when they're going to come. Like They don't come to your house and say, hey, guess what, I'm going to break into your house today and, and grab all your stuff. I want to let you know that. The point is that it's going to be unexpected sudden. You cannot pinpoint his coming. So the call in light of that is not to be consumed with this life so that you're surprised. He may come tomorrow. He's going to come at a time when it is unexpected. So thief, right? And then secondly, Paul says it will be like labor pains, right? Pregnant women know that when a baby's coming, in order to have the baby, labor pains are going to come. Eventually, at some point, the point is that labor pains come on suddenly, and they're unavoidable. Like you know the baby's coming, and you're getting closer and closer to that day, you, you can't escape from the fact that the labor pains are coming. That's his point. So sudden and unexpected and inescapable is what he's driving at. That, that the day of the Lord is coming. What the old Testament prophets repeatedly mention, when the king returns to crush Satan and all God's purposes reach their climax. And this is is going to be an event with global, climactic, cosmic implications. Romans 8 says that the whole creation has been groaning and it says, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So even the sin that has infected this world will be destroyed and ultimately creation will be restored and the new heavens and new earth will be brought in and Christ will reign as king. Revelation 20 says that Jesus will sit on his great white throne, right, and all will stand before him. Or in Matthew 25, it says he's going to gather the nations in and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Those who trusted in Him from those who rebelled against Him. Every single one. There will be no second chances. The encouragement here is that many of us will hear His words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. But the reality is when we come to this discussion is that we, we must be reminded that, that many will face e- eternal punishment in hell. We must be reminded of the reality of hell. What Paul calls here in verse 3, sudden destruction. I mean, just look at the words that Jesus used to describe hell. he says it's going to be a place of torment, anguish, unquenchable fire, the worm will not die, weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, eternal fire. And so listen, I don't want to assume... Here we are talking about we're going to be present with the Lord when He comes, right? Forever. But I don't want to assume that everybody in this room, that that's going to be their reality. In, In a room like this, there may be some here whose path right now is headed toward sudden destruction and eternal fire where the worm does not die. And the message for you, whether you are an adult or whether you're a little child, it's a challenge for you to be confronted with the decisions you're making today that will guarantee your reality for the future. Your decision to run your own life, to disregard Jesus' commands, to not submit to Him, to love the things of this world, maybe even to pretend to follow Jesus, to do the right things on the outside, but never in your heart, never in your heart being submitted to Him. And this is a challenge to you, to confront you, reminder that you're not free and the path is laid out and it's headed to destruction. But hear the encouragement that there's also a path that leads to salvation. That you can be saved. That Jesus died and rose again. Right? Which means that He conquered death. And then when you come to Him, when you repent of your sins, when you turn from whatever life you're living and you turn to Jesus Christ... In faith, you will be saved when you confess your sins and come to Him in faith. And you know what will happen? The rest of your life, when you do that, the rest of your life you will follow Jesus and He will give you your spirit, His spirit. He will give you His spirit and you will have true freedom. And you will have blessing and joy in this life. And guess what? You're going to have blessing and joy for all eternity. So the message is today, not tomorrow, today, To repent, to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Because the day of the Lord is coming. So today is the day of salvation. And church, be encouraged that this is our mission. That there should be an urgency to declare that there is salvation available through, through Jesus Christ. The reality and the imminency of his returning should drive us to mission. And as you stay on mission, church, the call is to persevere. Persevere. We see that over and over again. I mean, just look at the book of Revelation, right? What's the think about Revelation for a minute. Revelation is about perseverance. It's about endurance. And I encourage you to read it soon, to either just read it and then eventually even to study, get into it, but just to read through it. it Revelation is a letter Written to churches who are on mission. Revelation is a letter written to churches who are under attack. It's not primarily given to to make charts and to track nations, but it's it's to reveal what life is going to look like from Jesus' first coming all the way to his second coming and what to expect. And it, it's a book that pronounces the king and the triumph of the Lamb. It's, it's, it's a book first written to these churches and now given to us, a church living in a strange world to strengthen and to sustain our faith. You see, we live in the, first, in the last days between Jesus' first and second coming. The next event on the calendar, the next big redemptive event on your calendar, is Jesus' second coming. And everything in between is called the last days, as we expect cheerfully, joyfully that last day. But in between, these last days will be full of tribulation. Look at how John begins Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So there's tribulation, right? Throughout the last days, throughout our lives. I hear Jesus' words ringing in my ears from John 16, 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. We've got to keep those two together. In this world, you will have tribulation. But there's a kingdom. And there's a king. Sovereign over all. And we belong to that kingdom. Scripture says that we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, which means there will be tribulation. Don't be surprised by that. When hard things happen, disappointing things happen, don't be surprised by that. But remember that you belong to a kingdom. You are a child of the king. You're seated at his right hand, Ephesians 2. You're heirs of the kingdom, James 2. And the call is to persevere as we long for final victory of the kingdom. And when tribulation comes, when something hard comes, or when you're sinned against in those moments, and you just want vengeance, you just want payback, you want something done, in those moments we entrust ourselves to the king, to our creator God, knowing that there will be a day when everything will be made right. But right now, we entrust ourselves to him and persevere. Uh, if you remember Lord of the Rings, at the end of the return of the king, Sam is on his bed, right? And he wakes up and he looks at Gandalf and he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Church, yes. Everything sad is going to come true. Yes, it will. Take heart, take courage, take comfort this morning. We want to have a clear expectation from the word. And finally, point number three a biblically informed eschatology provides motivation for careful living. Motivation for careful living. It's not like we just, we're informed, we think about the last times, but then we're motivated for the way we live our lives. So, how does knowledge about the end times motivate us for these lives? As we look at Paul's letter, to the Thessalonians, to Jesus' teachings, to the epistles in the New Testament, over and over and over again, when we see discussion of eschatology, when we see the future brought up, you know what's usually always connected to? How we're supposed to live our lives today. Eschatology, ethics, right? Last times, how we're supposed to live right now. Christian living. We see this right here in a passage. Paul has just encouraged his church, given the vision of the last days. And he turns here in verse 4 and he says, But you, verse 4, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul says our world is filled with darkness, with a bunch of night people who love the night. And who glory in the nights and the pleasures of this world. And they run in their own life. That's the world we live in. But Paul then also says, that's not you. You're not asleep. You're not walking through this light. You're awake. You're, you're of the light. You are day people. You've been brought out of that kingdom of the darkness. Into the kingdom of life. Even though you, light, Even though you still live in this world of darkness, you don't belong anymore. You live in this present age, but you belong to the eternal age through Jesus Christ. And so live like who you are with your mind set on that, your hope set on that. What does that look like? Well, he tells us, verse 6, he goes on, he says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breast." breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation that's the call to keep awake and to be sober so first think about that keep awake be watchful be alert there's a sense of attentiveness and vigilance to these words it means that we don't just sleep our way through life like yeah i know jesus is coming back that's going to happen someday and so i'm just going to wait till it happens I'll wait till I die and I'll be with him. No, that's sleeping through life. There's a call to work here, to work for your Savior. You ever gotten sleepy when you're driving? You're driving a car and you're getting sleepy and you start doing this. Whoops, other cheek. You start doing that. Keep yourself awake. I've done it. Sunflower seeds, pop, pop, pop. the wind You're falling asleep while driving. You don't have to nod to that. You're falling. It's a dangerous thing to be behind. In you're holding a steering wheel. You're supposed to be holding it, and you fall asleep or getting sleepy. You got a duty to do the dangerous thing to fall asleep at the wheel. And the point here is that we all—it's a dangerous thing to fall asleep at the wheel of life. We need to be awake to the schemes of the devil. He's not taking naps. He's after you. He's got schemes to trap you. So be awake to the schemes of the devil to how the darkness is starting to infect our behavior and never becoming indifferent to sin. Paul says it in Ephesians 5, 15, he puts it this way. He says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So look carefully, live carefully. Scripture calls us to stay awake, to not go through life in spiritual slumber or sluggishness. Like, don't walk around in your spiritual pajamas your whole life. Like, yeah, I'm saved, but I just have my pajamas on. I'm 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 not a mission. I'm not fighting sin. So don't do that. That's not who you are. Kill the sin. Be holy. Look out for it. And strengthen one another. We run the race with endurance. How about by reading the Word, by letting it examine our lives, and looking at it and say, is my life? The way I think, the way I act, is it in alignment with this? By going to community group and opening it up and letting others say, hey, I think just a blind spot that maybe you're not seeing. You just described this whole situation, and you're talking a lot about yourself. I think there's a blind spot. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Opening ourselves up to others. At church, when we gather on a Sunday morning, opening our lives up to each other. And, and putting ourselves in that pathway that we might receive grace from one another. Right? That's what being watchful looks like. That we never assume that we're free from sin. And that we never need correction or encouragement or exhortation or being challenged by somebody, somebody else. We put ourselves in situations where we're being open. And when, when, we're sin, when we see sin in our lives, we confess it. We repent. We walk in obedience. That's being alert. That's being watchful. And secondly, we're to be sober. Another word for that is self-controlled. We saw that in verse six. Be sober. The idea here here is that we have moral restraint. We live like soldiers, right? Disciplined and diligent. We have a duty to do. We put on as armor faith, hope, and love. Faith in God. Hope in His second coming. His guaranteed guaranteed hope of His second coming. In love for others. It ensures that we're ready. We're daily prepared for Christ's coming. Like, we're not going to be in our pajamas when He comes back, spiritually speaking. We're not just, we're actually ready. We're prepared for the day He comes back. This provides motivation that we're not playing on our phone looking at something worthless, that we're not slandering somebody else in an email or in person. That we're daily ready. We're, We're saying, Our Master's returning, and I'm ready for that moment. And I'm fighting sin, and I'm being prepared constantly. Not giving in to sin before we meet our Lord. It's not not motivation to get saved, right? This is motivation to be fully prepared for that day when we will see the Lord. To be holy. Like the faithful and wise servant waiting for his master return in Matthew 24. Or in Matthew 25, like the ten wise virgins waiting to see their bridegroom. And over and over and over again... We see the connection in Scripture of our future hope with how we live. So as we wrap up here, let's just wash ourselves with a few of these examples in the New Testament epistles. There's, going to be, there's many more we can see, and you can study those out. Let me give you a few from Titus and First and Second Peter. Titus 2, starting in verse 11, says, "...for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people." training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, to live upright lives right now, longing for your blessed hope even as you live in this present age. And that word longing, that's a good check. I didn't understand that word for sure several years ago. I will not we want to cultivate longing in our hearts. And as we experience more of the brokenness in this world, as we fight against sin and we stay vigilant, there should be a longing. Come, Lord Jesus, I am ready to see you again. I'm ready to do your mission. I'm ready to work hard as long as I'm here. Oh, Lord, come back soon. A longing that swells up in our hearts. Or think about 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 11 says this. He's been talking about how the world is going to be remade. However it's going to happen. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be recreated. A lot of things are going to happen, right? And he says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, right? The world's going to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And when I hear about like everything's going to be dissolved, I would, hear, I would expect something different. Then oh, so be holy and be godly and wait for this day to come. He says something similar in First Peter four. Last one, first Peter four, verse seven. He starts I, I love this. He starts off by saying, The end of all things is at hand. You can just picture like a big sign that people want to write out. The end of all things is at hand. And what are they usually saying, right? Be afraid. Watch out. But watch yourself. End of all things is at hand. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He goes on and says, be hospitable without grumbling. Use your gifts to build others up. Walk out the Christian life. Work hard. Be on mission. Don't dwell in this fear. There's no fear here. An anxiety, fear of the government, or fear of death, or fear of punishment, or fear of the nations live in hope, long in hope. The king who died for you is coming back to, to bring back his own, so live for him right now. That's, how, that's the connection. He's coming back, so right now live for him every single day of your lives. I hope you see that. When, when we see the glorious future, we're to be motivated with hope and conviction to live lives now for the glory of the Lord, to please the Lord. So that when he comes back, we say, Yeah, Lord. Are you pleased? I've been following you by your Spirit through the grace at work in life. I haven't dilly-daddled. I haven't just running like I'm pursuing sin knowing you're going to save me someday. I've been living my life to please you. I've been living a holy life. I've been striving. What's the scripture say? Strive for holiness. I've been striving for holiness. And so it's all by your grace. And your Spirit has worked in me every single day. And I'm so ready for you now because you're now you your back in that moment when you see him face to face. So, church, stay on mission. Man, rest is rest is coming. It's coming for all of us. Now's not the time for rest. We labor in delight. We love to serve the Lord. We love to please him. And we labor on. So press on, fully ready to see your Savior. Let me land you here. Let me send you off with a story. Sir Ernest Shackleton, maybe you've heard that name before. Shackleton led a famous expedition in 1914 to cross the Antarctica. And as he and his crew went on his ship, aptly named the Endurance, going and breaking through the ice, 27 men, ultimately the journey was cut short because the ice surrounded the ship, crushed the ship, sank the ship, So now you have 27 men out in the middle of Antarctica in extreme conditions, fighting frostbite and hunger, and they're stuck there. And they're not sure what to do. And so a week later, Shackleton, he's the captain of this crew, he decided to go with five other men in a lifeboat, see if they can go get some help. And so the other 22 men were left in the command of Frank Wilde, like, see ya, I sure hope... That lifeboat comes back with somebody. And so these 22 men, extreme conditions, frostbitten, straining their eyes to see a ship on the coast. Think about it. How do they keep courage in that moment? Like, I, don't, I don't know if Captain's coming back, and I don't know if anybody's coming. What we see in, in the diaries of this time, every morning, Frank Wilde, who is the second in command, now he's, he's with the 22 men, He's the leader. He would cheerfully wake up the men every morning and say to them, roll up your sleeping bags, boys. The boss may come today. Roll up those sleeping bags, boys. The boss may come today. Shackleton might come back. Five months later, Shackleton returned. Every one of those men survived with that encouragement in their ears every single day. It's not time to sleep anymore. Get up. He, he might come back today. So be ready and be prepared. Church, may this be our mindset. To wake up. Roll up the sleeping bags. Get ready. Be prepared. Be on mission every single day. All illustrations fall short, right? So they were hoping that a lifeboat would come. They didn't know I don't know if Shackleton's coming back. Maybe he's going to say, I don't really want to go back. I'm going to stay. Or maybe he'll something will happen on the journey. They didn't know. I, point, I hope you've been hearing this throughout. When we're using the word hope, we're straining our eyes to the coast. We're looking to the clouds, waiting for Jesus to come and with guaranteed hope. It's going to happen. That's why we say certainty. That day is coming. And so we want to be ready for that day. Let's land here. Look at how Paul ends this passage, this section, with the hope of the gospel and with a call for the church to encourage. He does it again. Church, encourage one another with these words. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, church, encourage one another And build one another up just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, thank you that you've given us your word to encourage our weary hearts. Hearts that pursue other things, pursue temporary things, who fall in love with things that are not of you who run down and pursue sin, and yet You encourage our souls. You sustain our faith. So, Lord, we we land here on just... We're so thankful for You, Lord. I pray, Lord, that You would fill each of us with Your Spirit to continue to walk in obedience, to be vigilant, to run this race with endurance all the way on to glory. And we say... With John. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We do long that You would come, that You would break through this rainy day, the darkness of this world, and that You would come again, Lord Jesus. Pray all this in Jesus' supreme, magnificent name. Amen. Amen.